0: To many great and wonderful things. Um, uh, we know him very well here, uh, of course, because of all of that, but he's gone on to serve as a youth minister in other other churches. Uh, besides, um, I forgot the, Glendale. Besides Glendale, were you any, anywhere else? Uh, Canyon View. Church Canyon San View. San oh, San Diego. Okay. And then he also got a theology degree, a master's in theology from Fuller. And on the way, he just happened to have time to write a book called Follow the Way. And uh, he also has two young daughters, right? And you're going to talk about those a little bit. But anyway, it's good to have him back here with us uh, to speak this morning. And before we go into... uh, the next stage of the conversation, I just need to mention that he's also working at Bushnell University right now and serving as the uh, Director of University Relations. I like the title. It's a good title. What that means basically is he grows Bushnell University's reputation by storytelling and raising money through media and church relationships. So let's, uh, I'd like to invite you to have a prayer with me as we get started this morning, and then I'll let you fill in all the gaps that I missed. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Lord God, uh, for bringing people to the congregation that we can hear, people that have been here before, people that uh, are around in our area, people that were new to us also. We ask you to bless Lars this morning and help him, uh, as the words you bring will encourage and give us uh, strength and and, uh, possibilities for the future. We thank you, Father, for the church here that you've uh, developed and help us, Father, to serve you better in whatever way we can. Uh, Be with Lars, be with his family. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Mike. Um, Yeah, it was eight years ago uh, in May that uh, we were renovating this room and. here, as I said, it's been eight years. Um, my my family is deeply rooted in this place. Um, my aunt and uncle, uh, Dave and Lynn Staley, and my cousins uh, are here. I live down the street from him now in River Road, and uh, it's a gift that my daughters, Ashlyn, And then I decided, you know, it really is important to be formed into who God wants us to be if we're going to serve in ministry. And so I got a chance to go to Fuller Theological Seminary. um, And so I share a little. And I don't know about you, but my life was upended a little bit. I was a new dad and trying to figure out what this looked like to, to both need to work because uh, Southern California prices are so expensive. July of 2020 to Eugene, and so my parents get to be uh, grandparents to these two lovely little ones. And uh, that launched also an opportunity to work at Bushnell University, Um, and I just, I thought I would update you a little bit. Bushnell used to be Northwest Christian University or Northwest Christian College. You might be familiar with it down there by the University of Oregon, and uh, I'm back kind of home at uh, my university working there doing university relations work, and the mission hasn't changed at all. Sometimes I get that question, like "What what's changed? Why did they change the name to Bushnell? And the, the mission hasn't changed. It's still about fostering this wisdom, faith, and service in the lives of college students as they discern God's calling for their life. And so, um, you know, really it's all about this wisdom being informed by faith in Jesus that leads to their lives of service. And um, we wanted to continue that, but but more than that, we wanted to honor uh, the the history of how that's really been played out in these different values, things like faithfulness and gritty determination and humility, things that James Bushnell uh, was famous for when he founded the little chamber of commerce in Junction City and was involved in church planning. In fact. Two churches that I get to go and, and speak at often, um, the Alvador Christian Church out near the airport and, and others are, owe their heritage back to James Bushnell and he was there working to to kind of do what what we try to do, be the, the hands and feet of Jesus in the community and somebody came along and said, why don 't we have a Christian college that that trains up people to do this work and so James Bushnell was part of the founding of what became Northwest Christian College, and, uh, and so we wanted to honor that name. We also uh, needed to not get lost in all the different Northwests, so there are a lot of Northwest things, Northwest Community Credit Union, Northwest Christian Church, Northwest, 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 and um, so Bushnell is a little bit more memorable, but I'd be happy to, to talk to you a little bit more about why we changed the name uh, another time, but um, we did not a change in our mission, and we're about Christ-centered education. In many ways, we wanted to move from being just a named Christian university to something that embodied Christ-centered community all the time, and, um, and that is continuing. In fact, it was at the 125-year mark that we said we want to launch into the next 125 years of Christ-centered education— and it's not just um, something that's static. It's it's a venture that we're on, and so uh, you might have seen some changes around campus. There's three new programs like Bushnell Baseball, Beacon Baseball coming back, an accelerated Bachelors of Science in Nursing program, as well as an honors program, but there's also some some changes to campus. The Phoenix Inn uh, on Franklin Boulevard is now our residence hall, Womack Hall, and, um, and that was part of a land lease agreement 30 years ago, and it came to us now. And, uh, and then we'll be adding a, a building that will have a bell tower on it or a, a, a tower to our historic building downtown, and it will announce our chapel uh, service twice a week and um, have a cross on top to remind people uh, of our Christian of our Christ-centered education. So um, if you're curious about those things, I know uh, my boss, Keith Potter, uh, the Vice President for Advancement, will be here next week, and he can answer some other questions too, but we're just grateful to come alongside. As I'm doing university relations, my primary thing is to get to partner with, to come alongside, to build relationships with people like Calvin and others and with the churches to support ministers of God's people uh, in the community, and to come alongside churches and ask, what does it look like to do this together, to join with what God is up to in our community? And to do that, I think we need to see differently. And so that's what I invite you to do right now, is to open up your Bibles to Psalm 24, where we're going to take a journey up a mountain. If you've ever hiked up a mountain, my parents live off C.V. Loop right next to Mount Pisgah, and that's one of my favorite. I'm going to run the Butte to Butte run um, tomorrow on July 4th, and that'll come Spencer's Butte down to Skinner's Butte, and there's these beautiful Buttes. If, if you haven't done it... Um, you, you might ask uh, the Staley's about their Easter tradition, but uh, we go every Easter to Skinner's Butte and share some resurrection roles, and we sing songs, and uh, Dave reads the story of Jesus' resurrection from Skinner's Butte, looking out over the city. And as we do those things, I think it, it gives us a better perspective about what the gospel is to truly be about. So my hope is that as we open up the text, we truly do take a journey up the mountain of the Lord and have a a perspective shift. So the psalm, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Let's pray. Oh God, may you give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you have for us. Thank you, Jesus, for making us uh, pure, able to stand, Um, Help us to live uh, as your hands and feet in this place, in this city that you've put put us in for this season, with these people around us. Uh, Help us to be a generation that seeks your face and comes encounter with your holy presence, your glory, and changes us for the better. We thank you for this opportunity to pause and just get a different perspective on our life. Uh, Bless us now, in Jesus' name amen. So I think it's an interesting uh, psalm. It begins uh, with kind of a rhythmic tone, if you will. It's like some of the songs that we were singing. In many ways, the book of psalms is like the songbook for the church before there was a songbook, right? Um, It doesn't necessarily have uh, we're not confident what the music was, but we know that David was a musician and that he crafted many of these, and he likely was kind of riffing on something out in the sheep fields, and he was wondering aloud and singing, and I don't know if, you've, uh, if you're capable of that, but some of the greatest music that I've been around has been ones that weren't written down, but were spontaneous, were part of a response to what God had just done in their life. And uh, some of those are my favorite times to be around family. Some, some great singing happened in the gym here in my memories and breaking out into song, riffing on what God has done in our life. So if you look at your, your psalm, it's kind of um, broken out into three parts. And so verses 1 and 2 are there together as kind of a, a combo. And they're a little bit of a call and response Imagine yourself as a worshiper who has, is coming to church, but instead of coming to a flat parking lot with a door that doesn't have any steps, you are entering Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, and you're coming up the temple mount, and you have to ascend these stairs. In fact, in, to enter Jerusalem, you have to climb up a mountain, and there's a gate. And so you begin to ask this question, well, I want to declare who I'm worshiping. It's God. It's God. But then I I have to why am I worshiping this God? Because in verse two, he is the one who has founded the earth on its seas and founded it upon the oceans. Um, there seems to be this call and response. Verses three through six are another set, a kind of call and response. Well, if we're going up to the mountain, who can arrive there? Who belongs there? And so you might think of it as the first two are the people coming up, and then you might think of verses 3 through 6 being a response from those that are the worship uh, guard, if you will, the people who are at the gates, the people who are um, at the temple, who are serving, maybe the ministers of the temple, and they are asking this question, well, who can come up here? Who can be in God's holy place? And they respond with the qualifications. People who have clean hands and pure heart, who do not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And, and then it moves into the, the latter part, verses 7 through 10. And this um, might be an addition to the psalm as it was kind of edited together, but, but it goes together because maybe this isn't just about individuals who are coming to the temple. But maybe verses 7 through 10 paint a picture like David and his army bringing the Ark of the Covenant for the first time into Jerusalem. You remember that time where he danced so lavishly that his wife critiqued him for just being all out there, laying it all on the line. And so I think we need to to kind of envision ourselves as part of the procession of God's army coming back from a victorious battle and they are here And there's this question, well, we need to make sure that the gate is open. We need to be able to come in. And then at the top of the gate is the question, well, who is coming in? Well, it's the king of glory. Well, who is this king? And they respond back and forth, back and forth. Much like if we uh, did a good VBS song and we cut the room down the middle and uh, we did Hallelujah, Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. If you, if you remember that, I have good memories of doing that here. And one group is standing and then the other and it's a call and response. So we're invited into this. It's an active psalm. It's not just a psalm that's to be mused about. It's a psalm that's to invade our everyday practices of life. So let's ask a few questions about this psalm. Verses 1 and 2 talks a little bit about um, God's sovereignty, God's rule and reign over all creation. The earth and all who dwell in it belong to the Lord. And so I think it brings up a good question for us. To whom do we think that the world and everything in it belongs to. Who do we think has control? I I think sometimes our everyday actions betray that we think we're in control. Or if we're not in control of our life, um, we think somebody like a president of a country is. That we think governments are in control, or corporations are in control, or money is in control. We betray our allegiance to these other things by the way that we live, the things that cause us and keep us up at night. And the psalm is saying we need to sing, we need to call out to one another, we need to respond to one another by declaring who we believe the world belongs to. The world and everything in it belongs to the Lord. And so, um, you know, I, I like climbing mountains and um, going up there, I've realized that um, sometimes the air gets a little thin and it gets a little hard to breathe. If you've ever been, this is a picture of me on Mount Baldy um, in Southern California, and the elevation is just over 10,000 feet. And you drive up to a campground at about 6,000 feet and then hike an 11-mile loop. And uh, I was in pretty good shape. I was training for a marathon, and I thought, I've got this. So I just drove out there by myself, and I just started climbing up this mountain. I did fine for the first three-fourths, nine-tenths of it. It was that last half mile that I began to have my focus down on the path, gasping for every breath, because I, I was not altitude trained. I had been training at sea level in California. I was not trained to breathe at 10,000 feet, and I've been at 10,000 feet when I've been on a ski uh, at a ski resort, and I ride the ski lift up, and then I ski downhill, and I'm used to the elevation at that kind of experience, but I was trying to hike up, and it's only when I got to this picture, um, when somebody was gracious enough up there to take a picture of me gasping for air, and I stopped and realized there was nowhere else to go up, I looked around and realized I had been totally focused on the wrong thing. I was missing all the beautiful vistas around me. The air was so thin and crisp, I could see the whole San Gabriel Valley and look out upon even the ocean. And it was beautiful. And I had been consumed with one step after another, and that I felt like I was going to fall over. And I think our life is sometimes filled with so much chaos and so many distractions that we don't really see very far and we don't see very clear what God is up to. We don't truly believe God has everything in control because we're so focused on our own little domain, our own little thing, just the very next step that we need to take to survive, to get by. In the ancient world, water... And, um, and rivers and oceans. Uh, you think about it, if you got on a little, a little raft in the Mediterranean and a storm brewed up, it's pretty chaotic. And so in the ancient world, um, waters and oceans symbolize chaos. And we have this in Genesis 1, hearkening back to the creation that the Spirit of God hovers over the deep, over the waters. And then what happens? But God speaks and orders the chaos into morning and evening the first day, and morning and evening the second day. God takes what was chaotic and he separates it and puts limits on the waters. He orders our chaos. And so we can trust in God that he has everything in control and that we are not able to order our own chaos. That in the moments when we need limits given to us, God sets in order our chaotic life. And so on the mountain of God, we truly can see further of what God is up to in our life. It's the perspective that we need, and we also get a perspective on who God is in a clearer way because the mist is taken away, the air is thinner, we are closer to God. But as we get closer up, I don't know if you've noticed this, um, it's not just that the air is thinner to breathe, but there's thinner atmosphere, meaning that the sun's rays are harder on you. Have you ever gotten a sunburn when you're on the snow and you're like, how is this possible? But it's because the air is thinner, there's less protection from the sun's rays. And so I don't know if you've ever thought about the holiness of God in this way, but think of it as uh, the sun. God's holiness is like the life-giving uh, rays of the sun that brings up all of the grass and the, the weeds too, but also our beautiful tomato plants. Like, they need the sun to grow. It causes good growth. But the closer you get to the sun, the more harmful and intense it becomes. And so you need screen and Unblock, you need preparation to come and counter the sun. And if you get too close to the sun, in fact, if we just move a little bit off of our rotation around the sun as the earth, we would burn up, right? And if we go a little further away from the sun, we'd freeze, right? And so as we come and counter the holiness of God, if we're not prepared for it, we might just be destroyed. And so that's why the psalmist then in, in the verses that follow in verses 3 and 4 ask this question, who can stand in God's holy place? It's not just about the effort and preparation of climbing the mountain, but once you get to the holy place, can you actually survive the encounter with God? Uh, There's a a myth, I I think it's probably not true, but it it emerges in Jewish thought um, that they would tie a rope around the the high priest's ankle on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement as he went into the Holy of Holies, so that if he encountered God's Spirit and wasn't ritually pure and died, they wouldn't have to go inside the Holy of Holies and die too to try and get the body out, so they'd pull his body out. So there's this belief that circulates around because of the intense holiness of God that if you come face-to-face with God, you die. And that's a thought repeated over and over in the Old Testament, in fact. God tells Moses, you can't see my face, but I'll show you my back as I pass by. So if God's holiness is so intense, and yet that's where we want to go, that's the the mountain we want to go, what is the preparation that's required? And there's these two things put together, these kind of two um, groupings. Clean hands and a pure heart. And then he kind of talks about um, the uh, swearing by a false god and trusting um, in an idol. Um, And so these, these verses kind of go hand in hand actually to fulfill what Jesus calls the greatest command, to love God and to love your neighbor. Clean hands isn't about ritual purity in this phrasing. It's actually about not doing wrong to your neighbor. It's about not having a a mark against you. And the falseness, swearing by a false god, is actually about bearing false witness like the Old Testament... um, like the, the, the Ten Commandments talk about. Not bearing false witness, not saying wrong things about your neighbor. And then it talks about purity of heart and not trusting in an idol. Where is your allegiance? Is your allegiance in God or in these other things? So on the, on the top of the mountain, who can survive this encounter? Well, I'm not sure anybody could in, survive the encounter with God's holiness, And that's the gospel, right? That's Jesus coming in and saying, you are the righteous now because I have gone up the mountain. Not the mountain of the temple, but the mountain over here on Golgotha to the cross. And on that mountain, he saves us. He makes it so we are the generation who are able to seek his face, the God of Jacob. And so it's really only in, in Jesus' that we have the opportunity to stand on this mountain. This is a a picture from Mount Pisgah, um, which is a hike that's a little bit easier to do and one that I encourage you if you can. Um, Right now, it's, it's beautiful because there's not as many clouds, but in the winter, often you can't see because there's so much fog. You can get up there sometimes and you can see above the fog that the river brings in. And I wonder if that's the opportunity that Jesus provides us and that he invites us into. as we make this effort to have clean hands with our neighbor and to have a pure heart with our God, to love him, to give our allegiance to him, that we get above the fog. It's not that the mountaintop is perfect. It's not that we can see everything, but that it changes our perspective on the mess that we're a part of right now. It gives us an opportunity to allow God to set in order some more of our chaos that we have. So the final section of the psalm, then, is this worship service, this worship procession um, of, of the Ark of the Covenant coming in to Jerusalem. And I just, I just invite you, if you want, to either close your eyes or read the text and just imagine yourself as one of these People who is worshiping the Lord, and I'm I'm going to read it from a different translation than I read earlier. This is from uh, the Message translation, which is a little bit, a little bit different intent. But um, I invite you to just kind of imagine yourself as one of the people calling out to each other. So they say, "Wake up, you sleepy headed city! Wake up, you sleepy head people! King of glory is ready to enter." Who is this King glory? God armed and battle ready. Wake up, you sleepy head city. Wake up, you sleepy head people. The King of glory is ready to enter. Who is this King of glory? The God of angel armies. He is the King of glory. I think we need times of worship, times where we burst into song, times when we're kind of uh, riffing on the good things that God has done and bursting forth and responding to it. But I mean this literally. I, I don't think that we need times where we think about good music. I think we need times where we're actually uttering the words, where we're calling out to each other. Because it's in these times of worship, that we're reminded about who God is and who we are. That worship is this act that, de- that is us declaring that God is in control, that it is God's rule and reign that is here. And it's an, also a time where we declare who we are, that we are surrendering our control, that we're opening up our lives to the King of glory. So who is this King of glory? Well, glory is this is fascinating word it has a lot of different meanings in the old testament um in hebrew the word often used is kind of this word of weightiness so you might think of like a scale and god's glory would be the thing that just obliterates the scale it just it's just too heavy it's just everything it's the weightiness of god's value and glory But it's also when people see God's presence, like in a cloud over Mount Sinai, that they are overcome with God's presence as God shows up in a miraculous way. And John says, as Jesus comes in the flesh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only um, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is something that we can't really explain about the glory of God, and so the psalmist responds with these declarations about what God's mighty deeds as this God of, of warrior God, but it is in fact the only place God has given this title in the old, old Testament. There's a similar title given to him in another place, but this is the only time he's called the King of Glory. And I wonder if we are just kind of atop a mountain, looking through the fog, and it's a little bit hard to see God's glory. Maybe sometimes we're fearful that it's going to destroy us, like the people who said, don't let God speak to us, Moses. You go and and speak to us on God's behalf because the glory, the weight, is going to crush us. And I think the invitation through worship is to declare who God is and to see just a little bit further. It's like we take an extra little step. And so my my hope is that we would be the people, saved first by Jesus, able to stand in the holy presence of this great weight of glory. And we might see a little bit further what God is up to. We might get to raise our gaze to join with what God is up to in Eugene and beyond and to see clearer who we are and who God is. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for your weight of glory. We're grateful that Jesus bears weight for us, that we are not crushed, that we are not consumed, we are not destroyed when we come into your holy presence. And we know that right now it's, it's not fully yet uh, that we will see you face to face. And until that day, we, we ask that you help us to have clean hands, a pure heart, uh, to love our neighbors well, and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to truly give up our control to your control, um, to live as your people, um, here sharing Jesus with others by the ways that we sing by the ways that we uh, break into praise in response to your great glory. Uh, we thank you for this psalm, and we thank you for the the days ahead of us uh, as we celebrate our country, as we celebrate um, each other. Help us to do that as we—help uh, us to, to celebrate you as we do that as well. Um, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so I invite you to stand um, as we sing and to respond uh, with a beautiful uh, song, a song uh, from your heart as you declare who God is and who you are. Let's, let's stand and sing.